Hi, this is Ibarian X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the beautiful and intuitive website publishing platform that allows anyone to easily create professional web pages, blogs, online stores, and galleries on a single platform. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com forward slash candid frame and use the offer code candid frame five. Hi, this is Ibarian X and welcome to another episode of the candid frame. Well, for the last couple of weeks, I've been on vacation in New Orleans, which is a a wonderful city. It was my my first time. And not only did my wife and I have a wonderful vacation, but it was just a a great opportunity to pull out my camera and make a a, a lot of images. The the city is just just marvelous. And as you well know, the the events of the, uh, the hurricane about seven or eight years ago was really a devastating one for that city. But it's been managing to build itself back up, not just in terms of its infrastructure, but also in terms of what's been happening with the, with the people. And one of the things that I wanted to do when I went down there was to have an opportunity to talk with a photographer who lives in that community. And today's guest, Joshua Manpele, is just such a man. He's also the owner of a gallery called the A Gallery. And it's a gallery that he uh, started back in the 70s at a time when fine art photography was not considered to be fine art. The market for such work was not considered on par with what was happening with paintings and sculptures. It was pretty much thought about as, as a collection of, of snapshots that you know might be able to procure a couple of hundred dollars, but not the tens of thousands or millions of dollars that artwork were, was going for at the time. But he, he had a passion for it, and he not only wanted to create a venue for the photographs of local photographers, but just the photographers for whom he had a passion from throughout the, throughout the country. And as you'll hear in our conversation, he's a very passionate man, not only about the work of others, but also his own work. And I, I really enjoyed the conversation that I had with him because it gave me some really great insight into what it means to be a gallery owner. But what it means to be a photographer in in a society and in a, in a culture, in a city that's always in flux because New Orleans is, is such a convergence of culture and class and race. And it's just a rich, rich source for a photographer. And it's wonderful to see someone who actually lives in that community producing some amazing work rather than being someone who sort of dropped in for a short period of time and then and then leaves like like me. So while I did enjoy a lot of the pictures that I, I took down there, the work that you'll see when you visit uh, Joshua's website are even more amazing for the long-term story that they that they tell. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Joshua Man Pele. One of the things that I like to do when I have the chance is when I go to a, a place, I love having the opportunity to sit down and talk with a photographer who's part of that community. When I saw the Mannion video on you, I said, oh, wow, this is a great guy to, to talk to, not just because you're, you're a photographer, but you're a curator. 
That's, and that's sort of unusual. I know a lot of photographers, but very few that end up having a gallery where they not only showcase their own work, but they showcase the work of, of others. I know that you started this place in the early in the early 70s, but what you know propelled the idea to say, I not only want to make a career as a photographer, but I want to create a space for others to promote their work? Um, the main motivation was in the early 1970s when I began photographing seriously. I was at Rice University in Houston. And the John and Dominique Demonil were the first people to buy some of my original photographs. And they opened my eyes to the bigger history of photography, the idea that people buy great photographs that aren't sunsets, ducks, ponds, mm -hmm. and so on. And this is 1971, 1972. And the wake-up call was I didn't expect to ever sell a photograph. I didn't put prices on photographs. I made them, enlarged them, and put them on the wall for the very first time. And when I was contacted by their curator, you know, they wanted to buy them. I had no idea what to charge. And although I was in business, I was getting two degrees, economics, and a graduate degree in business, that was like, whoa, yeah. So in calling around and trying to check with galleries in Houston and around the country, there, you know, there was no internet back then, so I made a few calls, inquiries. And the, the general answer I was getting, the honest answers I was getting were two. One was, I don't know anything about photography. I don't know the history of photography. I don't know how to frame it. I don't know how to light it. And the second one was, do you know how many $50 photographs I would have to sell to equal the $100,000 painting I sold yesterday? And that's the mood in 1971-72. So I had been living in an antique shop and working my way through college a bit and was finding old daguerreotypes, tintypes, stereo cards, carte de visites. Simultaneously, I was taking my first photography course with Eve Sonneman and being introduced to the likes of Dean Arbus, Lee Friedlander, Ansel Adams, Cartier, Henri Cartier-Bresson. And... That combined with my inquiries into galleries that were not showing photography, and the only gallery at that time actually actively showing photography that I knew of was a man named Lee Whitkin in New York City, and he was six flights up. So um, I decided that by the time I graduated, which was still about a year away, that I would open a shop that dealt with old photographs, daguerreotypes, tintypes, amber types, and it evolved to mean much more than that, which was let's have the greats, like Ansel Adams was my very first major exhibit. Wow. I landed in New Orleans after initially getting a license to open in Houston, Texas, and then deciding I didn't want to live there the rest of my life. Went on a little bit of a journey out west to San Francisco and lived there for four months, planned on opening it there, came back through Louisiana, came through New Orleans, and discovered that the New Orleans Museum of Art, under the auspices of John Bullard, their new director, was going to actively collect photography, which was a big deal in 1973 when I found that out. So New Orleans was very receptive to starting a business and living in the same building as having your business, and that's the rest becomes history because I just opened it, uh, on a shoestring. It was great reaction from the local community. But in the first six months, I sold absolutely nothing. So how'd you get through that, that time? I mean, you're relatively fresh out of college. You're young. You don't have a, a pedigree. 
that that other people go, okay, he he should be a curator. You don't have any of that. None of that. So how do you get through those sort of lean times to the point where you're able to make this I viable? think it's important for people to know that there's more than eight hours in a day. And I always had two or three jobs. I would have the gallery open, but I was also getting up at 8 a.m. in the morning and going to a commercial lab where I was a printer. And when that was finished at noon or 1, I came back to the gallery and opened it up. And when the gallery was closed at 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening and after eating, I went into my dark room to work on my own work, often until 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. That's what kept it open. And in the meantime, I was writing, and actually you could pick up the phone and call Ansel Adams in 1973 and 4 and 5. And we're now in the, the spring of 1975, where I'd done it privately and sold a few things. I was trying to open the gallery, got to New Orleans in late 1974, and officially opened it in January of 75. In that process, I'm writing and calling Ansel Adams, and... He agreed to loan me through the through through his agent Harry Lund twenty of his original photographs, no strings attached. So in the summer of 1975, that was the turning point. Uh-huh. The minute I hung that show, people wanted to buy photographs. Half the people told me I was crazy and who would want to buy a photograph, and the other half said I'll pay five hundred dollars for an Ansel Adams. And who who were these? Who are these people? I mean, because that's a big part about running a gallery is finding that community of people who are passionate enough about the work to want to invest on it, not just once, but regularly. Did you find that they were primarily locals or were they people from the southern region? Where exactly were you Were you finding these people were, were coming to you from? That initial show in the summer of 1975, which, by the way, because I had very few people and no sales before that, I kept a log of how many people were coming through the gallery. And in one month, we had over a 1,000 people come through. And it was because of the publicity I was able to generate, it was a, definitely a regional. Mm-hmm. It was sort of along the Gulf Coast, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, maybe a little bit into Florida. Most of those initial sales in that first show were to New Orleanians. And a couple of them had already collected photographs before I opened my gallery. You were doing all this work to maintain the gallery. You mentioned that you would go into the dark room to work on your work. But finding the time to go out and shoot is a challenge, even if you have a normal full-time job. So how did you work that out that you could get out there? I know that I noticed that this is a fairly small community. So, and the fact that you're working for yourself probably gives you some flexibility with that. Did you find that that's what provided you the opportunity to go out and make your work, particularly the work that you're doing here in, in New Orleans? I believe it was really at that point in my life. I don't know where I found the hours in the day. But I became a part of New Orleans really quickly. Now, I was born here, and I had cousins here and grandparents, but I'd been raised in Baton Rouge. And so I dove right into the community, which is the easiest part of the Mardi Gras and that kind of citywide uh, celebration. And then I discovered the jazz and the second lines and, and then people in general, the landscape, the architecture here. All that was motivating me to take photographs. Mm. And so I was doing all of the above, running a gallery, taking photographs, working part-time in a lab. What did you find yourself gravitating? I took a look at a lot of your images, and a lot of them focus on, on the people, uh, and that plays a real big part in a lot of your, your work. But tell me more beyond the fact that there are people in your photographs, what it was that you were being drawn to over and over again in your, in your photography. 
I believe I'm inspired by people and the light that surrounds certain people and events. Spontaneity was always important to me. I'm not really comfortable in staging, rearranging, or directing people to be a certain way. So I, I've enjoyed over the years what I call my urban hikes, which mm -hmm. I just get up and start walking or bicycling. Or it may start out as a car drive, but the car gets parked. And it's when I'm actually walking that you start to notice everything. And there is a quality of light in New Orleans. There's an atmospheric type of light here that is very wet and rounded and wonderful and makes things glow, not just people. Yeah, I That's what that. attracted me. Um, I'd already had the successes of selling some of my work to some of the greatest collectors in the world, but now I was trying to move on and do something even more significant with what I was seeing and experiencing. It was also always very important to me to make photographs that I could share with my family and friends in my hometown who had never really left hometown. Mm. So I'm the guy who left hometown. So as my adventures increased and my travels increased, it was important to me to try to share these amazing opportunities that were coming to me and what I saw, witnessed, felt. Everybody I ever met that I photographed was very receptive. But again, spontaneity was key to me. It's sort of reacting to the moment motivated by something that I think significant enough to record. I was very miserly with my film because on a limited budget, I'm not shooting hundreds and hundreds of pictures to try and get one. Mm -hmm. It was very important to me. I was on a very tight budget. Every frame on that 36 roll of film, I could stretch it into 39 or 40. <laughs> I did all my developing all of that. But as you studied my negatives, you would see that I was here, then I was way over there, and I was way over there. I was never two, three, four shots in a row of the same scene. It just wasn't my style. And I was taught very well. My teachers at the time were brilliant, which is not to waste a frame and not to waste a square inch within the frame of taking that photograph. Well, so I've always, and Cartier-Bresson later became a a major person that I admire, was that when you're taking the picture, that's the deal. Everything in my frame stays in my frame on my finished print. Well, when, you, when you're including people in that frame, then you have to be able to anticipate the moment. So that's what I hear you telling me, because you recognize it before the moment actually happens. I believe if you're seriously involved in the moment, multiple moments, then that key moment will pop and happen. And yes, so in a way you're anticipating it. But whether, you know, early on I photographed a lot of rock and roll because that's what I was interested in, but I couldn't, my camera was a ticket to get in to see. Mm -hmm. And I always felt that the act of taking a photograph had to be a response to first me being there and experiencing and mm -hmm. then photographing. Even today when I watch photographers at events take photographs, they will often photograph without being in the event. I think to be great at something, you have to be at the event first. And then, as you're living through that event, these amazing, perhaps magical moments will present yeah. themselves to you as a photographer. But the power of observation, you know, that sort of silent, stop, look, listen, is a key ingredient in the way I view the world.
And that's especially true now in the age of digital, where people immediately look at the back of the LCD of their camera, and they're not experiencing anything. The only experience is what's happening within the camera. Everything else around them is just is just whizzing by. One of the things uh, I wanted to hear about was that you have not just photographed in, in New Orleans. You did this thing where you traveled across the, the country. And I, I really am curious to hear about that because I know I've, I've interviewed several photographers who've done that, where they've gone off exploring to meet different people and have different experiences. Tell me about that and how that how that sort of shaped your appreciation of people as subject matters for, for your photographs? Um, soon after I opened the gallery, I began developing an idea of trying to document the United States of America during 1976, which was the 200th year mm-hmm. of our official founding in 1776. So I didn't know if I was going to walk, hitchhike, bike, drive my car, get on a bus, get on a train. I didn't know, but I knew I was going to do something. My proposal eventually involved getting a railroad car, fixing it up with a dark room, a place to live, and a little gallery. And my crazy idea at the time was to talk Ramtrak into, on my schedule, picking me up and dropping me off this car I would have, this rail car. And that was my idea. That idea I took and I sent to the president of the, of the United States, personal photographer, David Kennerly. And I said, David, would you mind passing this on to an appropriate agency if you think it's a good idea? Which he did. Now, I had a subversive motive because I knew if anything, I knew Washington, D.C. would work as follows, which is if it came from the White House, it would probably get more attention than if I had mailed it directly to anyone. Little did I know that this was forwarded to a project called the American Freedom Train, which had already been on the road for a year. They, it was a bicentennial, red, white, and blue, 26-car, steam engine-driven, beautiful steam engine out of Portland, the 4449. And so my proposal was forwarded to them. They contacted me, and within a month or two, they agreed that I could join on board. As a vo- I volunteered. I didn't charge them anything. And I began to live on the train and traveled throughout the United States with the remainder of the train, which was 11 more months. And it was mostly the Midwest, Mm. North and South, East, and all the way down to Miami. Fortunately, previously in 74 and prior, I had traveled a lot out West to the national parks. I'd lived in San Francisco. So I felt like this was finishing out my journey to the United States. It was a remarkable year because each morning I woke up and my job was to walk and look and observe and photograph. And that's what I did. I produced about 12,000 black and white negatives, a few rolls of movie film, actually, and a few rolls of Kodachrome. must have been an amazing time in terms of your development as a photographer because you just... It truly was because the subject matter was changing every day. All the aspects of my personal interests, whether it be at night traveling with the train itself hooked back together and it's travel on a train through the heart of America originally, especially in terms of the economic history of America. And each community presented just great people, great characters, different landscapes, uh, different architecture, different personalities as you move through each region of the country. So I was, I was getting exposed to a lot of different once-in-a-lifetime moments and experiences. What do you think was the, the biggest challenge about that? Because it sounds like it's such a wonderful, exciting opportunity that a lot of people just would dream of. 
But I'm sure that you kind of discovered that there were certain things that really tested your limits, not only as a photographer and as an artist, but just as a, as, as a person. What were, what were some of those things? That's a very astute question. I think the biggest challenge, and anybody that's been on the road, whether it's a rock and roll show or a circus, has got to experience the same thing, which is it takes a bit of stamina and a certain kind of mindset to not stop. I could have walked away from that train many mm. times. And often, especially in the first three to four months, it's like, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. This is really difficult. You're, I'm living in a little bunk car inside a train. The bunk car was next to a generator. It was quite crude, and I've been on the road. I'm paying for my own expenses. I'm increasingly going broke. It's fantastic experience, but am I going to do this for 11 months? And then you, you cross this little threshold and travel where the, the clock stops, the month stop, the day, you stop counting days, months, hours, and you're just on the road. And once I crossed that little point, then it was kind of automatic. There might have been, there was a point, I think about two-thirds of the way through, where I just disappeared for two weeks. I went out west to a friend's wedding, actually, and I came right back. And that gave me that last bit of juice to finish off the whole journey. But it's a road show, and it's, it's these, anybody that's been in a nonstop road show around their art or their creativity or their music especially will probably say something similar to that it just takes a certain mindset and at the beginning if you've never done it most of us only done one two weeks three weeks as a vacation or a break or a project when you start getting into months committed to the same thing there are the points where you say ah enough of this <laughs> go back to my little apartment in new orleans and i was also still trying to keep my toes with the gallery alive each each major town i visited i was still you know the, the other side of me was incorporating going to galleries talking to people trying to meet photographers that i knew were great along the way so by the time i finished the train i had accomplished two things i knew definitely i was going to keep the gallery in new orleans i had reinforced all my existing relationships with photographers and other galleries, especially as I went through the Northeast, where New York and Washington, D.C. were my major sources of colleagues. The day I got off the train in Miami at, uh, you know, December 31st, 1975, I was on my way back to New Orleans to reopen the gallery to the public. That must have been an amazing work of editing that you had to, to do going through all that, all that work. So when you had the chance to sit down, go through all those negatives and see them and decide which ones you were going to make a print, what did you discover about yourself as a photographer? How had you changed in that 11 months? Because there's no way you were the same photographer that started that project who ended it. So what did you observe when you had the time to be able to go through the work and edit it down that you discovered about who you were as, a, as an artist? Another great question and one that I've never been asked before, I would say... One, I learned to take more photographs. It was once in a lifetime. I would not be going back. I would not be going back into the backwoods of Kentucky or West Virginia or Virginia. This, this opportunity was not going to happen again. So one of the main changes might have been that I was much more keenly aware of you're not going back. You're not going to get a chance to reshoot this. Initially, as a beginning photographer, there's these moments where you go, I'll come back tomorrow. I am. I'll do this, or I'll do this again next week, or, or I'll come back next year and do this festival again or something. And I learned quite quickly that, no, this was a, this was a, I was in a movie, and it was going fast, and I probably wasn't going to return. 
and you asked a little bit about the editing side. At the time, we did a small book about the train experience. So while I was on the train near the end, I had to stop at night and print up enough prints from what I'd already done so that we could edit for a book that would be delivered on the last week of the train. So I had that initial flurry of editing. And I learned out of that which images I loved, like Long Live Freedom in America, one of these moments that, yeah, I'm on a train moving 45, 50, 55 miles an hour, and I turn to see these children in a field in Mm -hmm. Kansas with their teacher that had been waiting. We were two or three hours late, and they had made this huge sign that said, Long Live Freedom in America. But I think in the excitement of us approaching, they had ripped it right in half. And this is the photograph. You see them trying to hold the sign together. Mm. For me, it was so symbolic of my own quest for freedom, my own love for the United States of America and our freedom. And I'm a history buff. That's what led me to want to do this 200-year project on America. And it, it was like it reminded me of a crack in the Liberty Bell. Wow. Well, when you, when you settled back in, in New Orleans after that, the experience of it is that you were still photographing people in, in community, but you were invested in, in this particular community. So what value or what advantage did that provide you that you were you know, here in this space and you were regularly engaging with all of those people that you know, most of the relationships that you had on, on, on the train were transitory? So, But now you had the place, the opportunity to linger, to just infuse yourself with anything and everything. How did that color your work even further? It, 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 you know what it did? It, 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 the same urban hikes that I was doing on a daily basis throughout the previous year on the train was now being done in New Orleans on a weekly and almost daily basis. I had no hesitation to just start walking through the streets of New Orleans and through neighborhoods. And sometimes we're reluctant to do that in our own backyard. You know, even in the 70s, people were moving away from walking into more and more driving point A to point B and not, you know, unless you lived in a major metropolitan New York City type place, you were not walking from point A to point B. You were driving from point A to point B. So it gave me a certain license, freedom in my own head to just walk the streets and see what's happening and pay attention. At the same time, New Orleans makes you be interested in music and music clubs and, and for me, the musicians themselves, which had already spent a great deal of time photographing rock and roll at a very high level, from the Rolling Stones to Joe Cocker to The Who, you name it. And now I could vest myself in our neighborhood clubs. And most recently, that's some of the work I've been starting to reprint again, which is I've had the opportunity since Hurricane Katrina to form a collaboration with a great darkroom printer. And before, I'd done everything myself. Nobody could touch my film, and nobody could print as good as me. But I learned, out of necessity from Hurricane Katrina, to begin to collaborate and work with someone who prints every day, and therefore is a much better printer than me. And we communicate well. He figured out the way I like my prints to look. So the volume of prints that I've been able to curate, edit out of my own work in the last seven years, actually we're coming up on eight years, is immense. And one of the projects we just finished was I was able to go back through the entire Freedom Train trip and re-edit. And my darkroom collaborator, David Zeitz in Baton Rouge, had been an editor as well in his other career. And he was editing at the same time. 
So we just spent four plus years, and we've produced over six or seven thousand eight by ten prints from that journey, and about three hundred or four hundred sixteen by twenty exhibition prints. And at the same time, I've looked back at my first New Orleans images and my first New York images, and we're just working our way forward. These are images that I always wanted to print. I never got time to. All through the last 40 years, I'd print, but I had to be very careful and very selective about what I would print. The re-editing going on now is with a new eye and a new body, a new history within my own experience that perhaps is making me pick things that I might not have picked out yeah. 35 years mm -hmm. ago. Although I took the picture for a reason back then, I may not have thought it was as important initially, and it becomes more important later on. That's, you know, that's something that I always find interesting uh, about my own experience, is that looking back at work, I'll look at something, and I'll realize that it's a, it's a great photograph. And at the time, I just... I just glossed over it, but somehow, instinctually, I knew to make it, but I didn't know to recognize it, and it's only through the course of time and as my eye develops that I'm able to appreciate what, what I did, and I think that's what you're, you're talking about there. You know, once after this, later, probably in the late 70s, early 80s, I went out with Lee Friedlander to shoot for a day in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. just, he just said, fine, if you want to come, that's fine. This man was a nonstop shooter. All day, all along. I'm still Mr. Selective. I'm shooting, but relatively selective. Then we have dinner together, and he's still shooting. And I remember asking Lee, I said, Lee, don't you ever stop? And he said, not really. He said, you know, if you're going to be a great golfer, you play golf every day, don't you? If you want to be a great photographer, you need to photograph every day, all the time. And I never forgot that. Yeah. Lee was right about that. You do have to photograph regularly so that you get to the point you just described, which is that you instinctively, intuitively are taking images and photographs that you know are meaningful. You may not know the full impact until later in your life, but you're in a zone, you're making photographs, and I'm not talking about wasting film, I'm sort of reiterating what you said, but you, you knew you had to make it. You may not have initially printed it, but later on when you look back at it, it reminds you of that instinct, that intuition that forced you, got you to take that picture initially. And that's what I'm going through right now, which is quite exciting. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. Whether you're an amateur or a professional photographer, you need a website today, but you don't need just any website. Too many websites out there are, are either dated, hard to navigate, or they're just a, a hot mess. Almost immediately when you hit some of these websites, you completely disregard the quality of the images just because the presentation itself is so poor. And that's why Squarespace makes it so easy for us as photographers to have a wonderful platform to share our photography. And it's all built on these amazing templates that they have. And, and the great thing about them is that just so simple to start using it almost immediately when you access your account. It's completely drag and drop and they have these wonderful templates. They have Ishimoto, which I'm using for my own website at abarianx.net, but there's also Front Row and, and Momentum and several others. So depending on the look that you like, you have a great starting point with the templates there, but it just doesn't stop there because you have the ability to be able to, to customize it in a variety of different ways in terms of colors, in terms of fonts, in, 
any way that you can imagine changing your website, it's already there at your disposal with these simple tools. So why don't you go out and just try it for yourself? And even if you don't have a website or you do have a website that you're just not happy with, there's no pain here because it's completely free to try it out. Just sign up for a free account. No credit card is needed. Just just try it out and start building your website today. Then if you decide to purchase it, use the offer code CANDIDFRAME5 and get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, including monthly and annual plans. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME5. And if you want to see what I've done with my website, you can go to barionx.net and see what I've done. And I think, I know I'm pleased with it, but, but take a look at it and see whether that inspires you to, to try it out. Hopefully it will. So again, that's squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME5. Everything you need to create an exceptional website. When you started showing your work to the people in the community, what was, what's the reaction? Because I think it's always, most people are, are, are accustomed to snapshots. But you're, you're looking at their world with a very insightful eye. As people became more and more familiar with, to your work, what were some of the reactions that you were, you were hearing to what you were doing? I have to comment that I was very fortunate to have Dominique Demonil interested in my work, Houston, Texas. And every year she was the main person I wanted to show my work to. And in those initial years of the gallery, I did not force or present my work on the wall along with Ansel Adams and all the other greats I began to show. I made a definite decision that I was not going to mix the two because I found it, it becomes confusing for the customer. Are you promoting yourself or are you promoting Ansel Adams? As a result, you got to see my work really until five or six years ago. If you came to my gallery, you didn't know about my work unless you talked to me and asked and I pulled out a portfolio and showed you because mm -hmm. I did not like to mix. Hurricane Katrina changed my mindset a little bit. Turning 55, 60 years old changed my mindset a little bit. You know, it's now or never. And I knew the caliber was there. I had one of the greatest art collectors in the world buying my work while she was alive. And then other people that came through the gallery and asked and saw the portfolio, they were buying as well. But you did, I did not actively put it up on the wall as an exhibition. Now, the reaction of the community was always very positive. I really have always felt that if I'm a photograph you, I'm not out to hurt you. I'm not out to demean you. I'm doing it with respect and love. And my photographs, I believe, reflect that. And I always had an open arms in this town, everywhere I've ever traveled, in people's reaction to me when I photograph them. I don't know if it's the expression on my face when I look at them afterwards or the look in my eyes, but I've never had a really, I've had one or two negative experiences, but nothing to really matter. You know, people seem to know that I was doing something for the future or yeah. for history. I was a history buff. I knew that with luck and with insight that I was producing a body of work that would have historical value. Well, you, you mentioned Katrina being a, a, a pivotal moment in your, in your life and in your creative life. Well, tell me about your experience and, and why that served as a, as a catalyst for transforming it. Well, as the gallery grew through the 70s and the 1980s and into the 1990s and 2000s, more, it took more and more of my time. I continued to photograph because the camera was always with me. 
always. So if I traveled for the gallery to New York or Europe or wherever I traveled, the camera was with me. And I still did my hikes. And I still had my moments of inspiration. It was just everything was lumped together. And as we got into the year 2000, I could see that I was putting off more and more this, this you gotta, you got to print a lot. You've got to really produce more of this work. You've produced enough. People know you're good. You're selling it. But you've got so much more to do. And Hurricane Katrina comes along. And I didn't leave New Orleans. I stayed right here in the gallery and began to photograph, especially the first two to three weeks during the storm and after the storm. And it kind of kicked me in the rear about that time clock and the slope you're on after you turn 60, which is, that, you know, you may only have 10 years, you may only have five years, but you know you're not going to have 30 or 40. And with that limited time staring at me, I needed to produce a lot of work. Now, I haven't stopped photographing. In fact, it's hard to keep up because I'm like this little machine that makes more <laughs> photographs and more paper and more files and more storage places to keep all this work. But I have this collaboration going right now with a great darkroom printer, and that's freed me up to produce volumes of work and allowed me to do a couple of museums show in the last two or three years, produce another book. I have three books throughout my career. I did a book on the American Freedom Train right at the end of that called All Aboard America. Very hard to find, but a pretty cute little book. Then I, did, I came back to New Orleans with the gallery, but then I learned that there was going to be a World's Fair here, and I started documenting that. Decided to do it in Kodachrome instead of black and white as a new challenge because I felt I was so good at black and white. Well, let's see how good you can be in color. Devoted myself to Kodachrome for those five years. That turned out to be 10 or 12 years of doing just Kodachrome. Produced a book about the New Orleans World's Fair in color. That was the second book. And then most recently, about three years ago, we did a book called I, E-Y-E, See America. And this was a curated show at the Polk Museum of Art in Lakeland, Florida. And it was a collaborative curation. And that was to look back at all the work I had done in the United States and pull out 69 photographs for that exhibit. Yeah. I want to talk to you a little about Katrina because there were so many images that came from that event. Uh, there was stuff immediately after the storm hit. And then there's all this imagery later on that's all, I, I term, disaster porn. Um, Good term. But, you know, I, 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 I like the work that you were doing and some other photographers who were doing over an extended period of time, well after all the media had stopped coming here to, to, to photograph it. I'm, I'm wondering, what was it that you saw differently that you felt like, I need to capture this with my camera. Something's changed here. It's not just that this storm came through here and destroyed all this infrastructure. Something has changed, and it either can be both good or bad, or maybe both, but it was something that you recognized and said, I need to use my camera to document this. And, and, and what was that? Well, I am an internal optimist. I did witness this terrific blow to a great American city. I understood it on both a social and economic and level and those things appealed to me and that's part of what motivated me as I started to I use my bicycle a lot during the storm and right after the storm and those weeks after the storm to just kind of probe the boundaries of the, of the devastation and you know throughout my life 
again, this goes back to Eve Sonoma when she first taught me. I remember so much her saying, photograph what you like. Photograph your own life. The way you see the world is what I'm interested in. And so I try to remind myself of that, especially as an older adult, because if you keep that childlike, this is new, this is exciting, this is fresh, this is, and this is what I like. You know, so what I liked about New Orleans before the storm is what drove me to try and feel and see and answer for myself the question you just posed to me. What was it about this city? What was happening to it? Can, can I document that in imagery? And I believe I succeeded in a few cases because around me, instead of, and it's been this way throughout my life, I'm not going to focus on, on all the nasty. It might be in there, mm-hmm. but I'm actually finding that I've always, my, I always was led to the more positive, the silver lining, the blessing out of the disaster. And what I saw was people around here helping each other and in the early days feeding each other. And then after that, from the cleaning up, the, then I witnessed uh, visitors and students and church groups and professionals coming here and devoting countless hours of their time to help this city rebuild itself. This is what excited me. This is what pointed my own eye in the direction of this can work. This city will come back. And it's that kind of energetic feeling that I believe attracted my camera. Mm. There was physical evidence that I would document, but usually it was a symbolic physical evidence. I think as you look through my photographs, and you can go to agallery.com. I did post all 168 images that I produced as a set about Hurricane Katrina. It was ultimately, that set was bought by a local collector to preserve for the future. So I put those all on the internet at agallery.com. And you can see the range of my interests in those weeks after Katrina. Humor is included in it because New Orleans has a remarkable sense of humor. It's a survivor's kind of humor. New Orleans as a city, you know, is almost 300 years old now. It has had many catastrophes and it has rebounded in various ways each time. This time, I happen to be living through one of the most, you know, critical moments in its history, and I'm witnessing a tremendous renaissance. The spirit and energy of this city today is stronger than ever. Yeah. Tell me about the, the photo community here. I've been visiting a site that, that uh, revolves around southern, southern photography, and I know that different cities like New York and San Francisco have these communities of, of, of photographers. But I'm real curious in terms of here in, in your area, what is that, what is that like? Because I know there's a lot of interest in photography. But in terms of the community that you're, you're jacked into, what is that like for you? What do you think are some of the special qualities about the people here that, that regularly document this, this city and, the, and this region? The longer you live here or visit here, you would discover there's an amazing array of very experienced, fine art, you know, photographers, photographers that are trying to do something more than a commercial shot. A lot of it is driven by street photography, but there's, there's every kind of photography here. So the photography community, even from the day I got here, was very interesting to me. It was, had a kind of cohesion, even though everybody was independent. Katrina kicked it into another level. 
The New Orleans Photography Alliance was formed by a group of the photographers here in town to help other photographers out that had been devastated by this storm. It was a nonprofit organization. It created a, a yearly photography festival for December. Every December we have a month of photography. We bring in outside curators, reviewers, book dealers, photo dealers, artists, photographers. We have fo- portfolio review sessions. So this little idea right after Katrina, which came from that core group of photographers you just asked me about, has blossomed in this really positive, beautiful event called Photo NOLA every December. Everyone Mm -hmm. should come down and experience it. It's really remarkable. I think the variety of photography going on in New Orleans right now is much greater than it was, you know, 20 and 30 years ago. There's people interested in alternative processes. There's people doing a lot more than just a documentary, you know, a lot more than just Mardi Gras Jazz Fest music clubs. There's a much greater degree of involvement in what they're trying to do and accomplish. And the communication amongst the photographers, I think, has grown a great deal. I think because it's, you know, it's not New York, it's not L.A., it's still a very small town. This is the biggest small town in the world. You know what? In the short time that I've been here, one of the things that makes it has it leaves me chomping at the bit that I wish I could linger here for a longer period of time to document is the merging of race, the merging of class, the merging of cultures. You have all these disparate people that are interacting and living together in a way that's really, really rare. Um, Los Angeles, for all the diversity in terms of the population, is very segregated. And, and so is New York. And the only time that you have that convergence is in terms of when people are working together. But here, that extends to people actually living together. And, and it's amazing to observe just as an outsider for just several days. And it must be probably one of the richest things that, that you have you know, on your, on your canvas as a, as a photographer to use. It's a wonderful city. I heard it described as a checkerboard city when I first returned here after college. And that means a number of things. One, black and white is, you know, crossing every day of your life. This has been a multicultural city since the beginning. Spanish, French, Latin, North American Indians, Africans, Jamaica, all of it's here. You start throwing in the Vietnamese and the Middle Eastern influences over the last 20 or 30 years, and you fast forward into the 21st century, and we're the most just naturally everywhere you shop you go to the grocery store you go walk down the street you go sit in a place to eat you go you know shop you're not you're not you're not in a white bread situation you are surrounded by people that are different than you and all those cultures have merged in this town into a very healthy balance is it perfect no but nowhere on this planet is but this town is very comfortable with letting you be who you are as long as you keep that grace and that politeness and that sort of lovingness and warmth that the native New Orleanians has. It's just a natural kind of sociability and neighborhood. Come on in, baby. You know, it's just this really, I still experience it every day I'm here. Complete strangers giving me all the help and love and whatever I need at that given moment. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a geographic thing. It's a history thing. And it's just the nature of the people here. It's a very normal, expected thing. And it's not something they, they, any of us work on. It just happens. That's awesome. You know? 
And I do believe people visiting here get it. They, they may not be able to put their finger on it initially. The longer they stay, they might be able to verbalize it like you just did, and I'm trying to. But it is something in the air, the water, the food, the music, the architecture, and the art of this city that the people manifest it. The people are the real important thing of this city. Yeah. Well, my last question is I ask each of my guests to recommend or suggest another photographer for our listeners to, to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone. It can be someone you've long admired or someone you recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I'm going to cheat. <laughs> First, Josephine Sacaba, who has lived in New Orleans as long as I have. She's from Laredo, Texas. Just marvelous work. A real poet with the camera. And lately has become very involved in her printmaking and learning the traditional method of photogravure, which is something that was 100 years old and sort of not done much. She's taken it to a whole nother level. And the other couple that I love in photography is Louvier and Vanessa, Jeff Louvier and Vanessa Brown. And they are taking photography in a direction that I never expected that I would want to appreciate or see. And their work is very different than the traditional photography that I show in my gallery. So I cheated a little bit, but those two, three photographers is who I would point your oh. listeners' attention to. I look forward to discovering the work for myself. So where can people go to find out more about everything you do? Definitely to www.agallery.com. They can come to New Orleans and come to 241 Charter Street, A Gallery for Fine Photography, and walk in the door. As I'm sure you've experienced, we treat everybody the same. We'll show people photographs. I don't judge people about whether they can buy or not. My place has often been described as a museum. I run it like a museum, but it's the only museum in the world that's for sale. <laughs> and where is the? Uh, where can they find out more about the event in December? Is there a website? Oh, photonola.org. P-H-O-T-O-N-O-L-A, N-O-L-A, dot org. Great organization, and all photographers should be aware of this. Well, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to have a chance to talk to you. It's been my pleasure, truly. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.